Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. If we hope to survive in this digital age, we have to think critically about the messages we consume. Someone created those messages for a reason. Let's find out why. Sometimes we just have to ask, what the media? I'm Megan Lynch, an Edward R. Murrow and Gracie Award winner with Legacy Radio Station KMOX in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm joined by Julie Smith, author, instructor, public speaker, and our guide for how to be a savvy media consumer. In our first season, we focused on dissecting messages. This season, transparency from the mouths of the content creators. Sometimes that content isn't news or information, it's a vibe. If they have that great soul, and it just sounds like the music's like dripping off the speakers and the person just falls into your ears, like that's, that's when I know I have something special. Julie and I talk with Carl Napa. This veteran music engineer, mixer, and producer has had a hand in dozens of gold, platinum, multi-platinum, even diamond award-winning records. He's guided dozens of recording artists, including rapper Nelly. In this episode, selling songs in the age of syncing and streaming. A music engineer basically holds a lot of roles, and that could be the person who is actually setting up the microphones, recording the actual music, doing all the technical work of, of the record. A mixer is more of a specialized version of that person who is actually taking all of those tracks that are recorded and putting it into a cohesive product that can then be played on you know, someone's MP3 player or phone or phonograph or CD or whatnot, car. And then a producer could be doing those roles, but typically the role of a producer is to like kind of guide the creative content of the record. And they're in charge of budgets. So, you know, if they go over budget, typically with a record company, it comes out of your back end. If it's an independent artist, you just run out of money. You can't finish and then no one wants to hire you again. <laughs> um, myself, I'm what do you consider a producer engineer because I've cut my teeth as an engineer. And so it's easier for me to kind of just flow with everything. So I don't have to translate to an engineer like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. I'm just doing it. And, and I, I enjoy still recording. So for me, it's it's a plus. And I, you know, mold it all together in one nice package. I think we have this image of the recording industry being this glamorous thing. And you go in with all your makeup, you know, and your Bambi eyelashes and, you and know, your posse in one take <laughs> and you do this thing, you know, really describe for us what it takes maybe just to get one song out there. I mean, you just did. It's like, that's it. You just come in with your makeup and your <laughs> Evian water and uh, well, it's not Evian anymore. It's with that other stuff. But anyways, it's completely the polar opposite. Yeah. So basically what you described is a video of the experience and, and the glamorous side of it. The truth is, is it's a, it's a safe haven for an artist. So when an artist comes into a studio, especially my studio, I want that artist to feel like so comfortable because they're going to be creating or performing in a space that is so not conducive to performing, right? Most artists perform in front of what? 10 people to 25,000. 
Now all of a sudden you're seeing me across the room smiling, like waving at you in the, in, through a little window like we have right here. And that's your audience. So you have to create this vibe and this energy. And I go through great lengths to create that. Yeah, because studios are really sterile environments. Can be. Hard surfaces, things on the walls to cushion the sound, microphones. And it's not a normal experience for people to have a mic in their face. It's so true. And and when I worked at the Hit Factory, we were uh, uh, the four seasons of recording. And it was like that environment. Everything was beautiful, you know, like just in this room. Everything is beautiful and put together. And my studio from the outside looks like a condemned building. You wouldn't even know I'm in there. <laughs> and it's kind of beat up and it's in the back of this parking lot. But when you walk in, I'm on the second floor and it's like walking in. Someone someone made the analogy. It's like walking into a treehouse. You know, it's made in the 80s, and, and the men who did it put all this beautiful wood. And so when I was when I was incorporating the space, a friend of mine who's a really great St. Louis tattoo artist, Matt Hodell, came in here, and I was telling him, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put this wall here and change this and do this. And, he, you know, he's like, excuse me. He was like, no, don't do any of that. Just put a couple of table lamps and make it cool. You know, some LEDs. I'm like, uh, yeah, I still want to do my... Because you know, that was my background. And then when I kind of sat in the space just by myself, that's what I ended up doing. I followed his kind of lead on it. And it's just a really creative space. So word on the street, Carl, is that you have a hand in the sale of over 79 million records. Did you know that? I do not, actually. Yeah. I have to apologize. That's a misleading statement. <laughs> and... Um, I recently did the math, and it's eighty-five point five million. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, just a few million. Just off. a few million off. I stopped counting a while ago, and you know, record sales dropped off. And then that's true. That's true. I had to redo a, a discography for something, and we we tallied it up, and I was like, "Holy smokes!" So tell us, for example, you've worked with some of my favorites: uh, David Bowie, Madonna, Michael Jackson, Prince, of course, the Pet Shop Boys, which is my absolute favorite. They come into your studio, they have a song on sheet music, or they have a song in their head. What's the first thing they do when they're in your studio? Uh, if someone's just coming in off the street with a song, like let's just say I'm not producing, and as you're just walking into a studio, hopefully the first thing they do is they kind of listen to your ideas and your general you know, assumption of what the song should be, and that person should kind of dictate you know, which microphones and how the band's going to get set up and so forth and so on. If it's a live band or if it's all machines, you know, where to plug those in. And then you just try to capture the best performance of that song that day. You know, a lot of people freak out when they see the red light go on. They call it red light fever. And I think most people just, oh, it has to be absolutely perfect. It has to be great. It has to be this. And my whole philosophy is we're just taking a snapshot of this song today and your performance of it. Can we do better tomorrow? Probably. Can we do worse? Most likely. You know, but right now we're just capturing a beautiful performance of it. And what our goal is, is to just put that in the computer, because we use computers now, right? No more tape. Well, some people still use tape, but... Um, and just get the best version of that song that you can possibly have at that time. And just have it so that when it comes out of the speakers, someone wants to listen to it. And as a producer, what I strive to do is to sit back in my chair and listen to it as if it was the first time I heard it. Now, I might hear that song a couple of thousand times before it's finished, and I, every time I try to listen to it as if it was the first time. Like, what is it missing? What does it need? Is it perfect? You know? And then I listen for the little bumps, the little, you know, um, 
flaws in it that are actually beautiful. And a lot of times somebody wants it to, to sing like totally in tune or play a guitar perfectly in time. And I'm like, well, I kind of liked it when it was a little out of tune and it was a little bit rough. In the music I grew up on, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and things like that, it was pretty rough at times, right? But it was beautiful music. And if anybody, you know, says, oh, well, this was out of tune and that, who cares? It's just, it's just so emotional, right? Music, when we hear music, it brings us back to the place we first heard it, whether it was a first kiss or mm-hmm. a prom or a wedding or whatever, or just, you know, driving down the street and, you know, maybe walking into your new home or whatever. And that's the emotion that we're always striving for. And we all want it to be emotional. I want it to be an experience when you hear something. You know, for me, I've hit that magic age where a lot of the new artists all sound the same to me. Oh, I'm there too. (laughs) Unfortunately, you know, and it's no criticism of them. It's just me, probably because I'm not listening with the same kind of ear I was when I was a teenager or in my 20s. For you, when you're listening to someone and they're saying, you know, I want to record this, you know, do you still hear fresh new ideas, fresh voices, you know, or, or do you feel sometimes like you're just hearing the same thing over and over again? How do you find that unique actor person? Sure, sure. Um, in my career, I've, I've made it so that I can look for that fresh. I look for an artist who has a voice that doesn't sound like anybody, that sounds special. Maybe it's a great combination of a couple of people in the band and how they play. Um, I don't get excited to just record something average. Now, if I have to, because like say Vanity Project where someone's giving me a ton of cash to record something, <laughs> I can make that sound unbelievable. I can make anything sound unbelievable, right? The tools that we have right now, just as in like video editing and, you know, Photoshop and all that stuff, like we have auto-tune and we have Melodyne. I can tune anything. I can time anything. I can play God, you know, just to use it as an example of moving something around. But what I can't do is give it love. I can't give it that vibe. I can't give it that spark. That has to come from an art. Even if the person can't sing, I can make them sound good. But if they have that great soul and it just sounds like the music's like dripping off the speakers and the person just falls into your ears, like that's that's when I know I have something special. You remember Video Killed the Radio Star? Of course. Has video changed how you approach your job at all since MTV and the like came to power? Yes and no. Um I think video is still relevant. There's no outlet right now. Mm-hmm. Although I YouTube. did read YouTube. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. There's a big outlet there. Um, I did read Facebook is going to start embedding the ability to play videos. So that can be a nice step. Um, but I think what happens is, and, and I'm glad you mentioned YouTube, because people want to see that visual associated with the music. If you just put a song on YouTube with like a, um, a lot of people put up like just the lyrics that uh-huh. scroll. No, it's boring. They want to be enticed by that lyric. And a lot of times um, they go hand in hand, you know, especially a lot of younger artists because they have grown up with so much technology is that they might be doing the smaller videos. When I say smaller, you know, when I was growing up, it was $100,000 to do a video, $150, a million. You know, it was crazy amounts of money. And now, you know, you could probably shoot it on your iPhone or most people have some kind of camera at home to do that. And a lot of bands, what they're doing, a lot of artists, what they're doing is going hand in hand and creating these beautiful um, music soundscapes and, and visual soundscapes that kind of go together. And they go on YouTube and they get a million views. And, you know, there's some money to be made on that very little, but so in the long run, it's if it's a lot of views. 
That brings me to the money question, because years ago, record companies made money from album sales, and albums really don't sell like they used to because we can cherry pick the songs we want. And artists made a lot of money on their tours. Well, obviously, in the last couple of years, there haven't been those tours. How does one make money now? Because they don't get a lot of money from YouTube streams, even though YouTube streams more music than Apple, Spotify, and Pandora put together. How do you make money in the music industry now as an artist? I mean, as an artist, you diversify. You know, you still make some money from royalties, although be it small. Um, unfortunately, with the age of streaming, the, the service that I provide has become almost like a marketing tool. You know, the record itself has become something that is, is considered worthless. You know, it's a giveaway a lot of times. You put it up on Spotify and, and people can enjoy it. But also, the beauty of that is it's on Spotify or Apple Music and people can enjoy it. And you can walk around with access to millions upon millions of songs, right? That's what we like. We like to have instant access to something. Right. There still will be some people that will buy vinyl. There'll still be some people that buy CDs. In the independent underground, like indie rock world, cassettes are making a, a comeback. No. Yeah. I'm suddenly hip again. I need a mixtape again. <laughs> right. And, um, but you have to understand the most important thing that we have as creative people is the intellectual property, the actual song. That's where you make your money. And you make your money now by, you know, commercials, you know, sync fees and taking all of that stuff and being able to have someone generate money that's outside of the normal payback, meaning record sales and stuff like that. Getting into a movie, getting it into a TV show, a trailer for uh, something, you know, and that's very lucrative. And it's it's I mean, the, the great thing is that, you know, those type of folks that do, you know, um, music supervision. You know, they can, they can just listen to everything. There's so much music out there. What is a sync fee? A sync fee is uh, when you sync it to video. So you, there's different types of publishing that come along with a song. Like you guys had a thing about publishing, I think, on one of these episodes in the book world. And in the music world, it all stems from one thing. When uh, sheet music was first distributed, maybe around the turn of the century, and you would have to pay for that, and the artist would get, whoever wrote the song would get paid. And over time, as our technology changed... It became, you know, different licenses, whether it be a mechanical license, you know, the sale of the record. A sync fee is when you put your music to video, whether it's a movie, a TV show, a commercial, anything like that. And the people who own the song, the publishing of the song, you know, get paid for that. And also the ownership of the recording, the sound recording. There's really two pies to that puzzle. So is it more lucrative to be the writer of a song or the performer of a song? The writer. I mean, Frank Sinatra fought for years to get the performance royalty from terrestrial radio, and they still, to this day, have not granted it. Well, it's it's in Europe, but it's not here in America. And the Grammys and our advocacy program is fighting hard to get that for music notations. I just happen to be the vice president of the uh, Memphis chapter. Oh. <laughs> you know, speaking of radio, radio used to be really a power broker. Yes. When it came to getting songs played and having that relationship with radio stations, I mean, there's all kinds of rules related to that as well. Is radio still a powerhouse when it comes to uh, getting artists some exposure? Yes, and I think radio will always have its place. I think the problem we're facing is the younger generation doesn't listen to radio. Mm-hmm. Like my children, they're all in their 20s now, don't really listen to radio anymore. So to break an artist just on radio alone, 
I think it's really hard. I think what happens now is radio is following the digital stuff, meaning if you listen to pop radio right now, just take pop radio, for instance, all those songs are the biggest things that are on TikTok right now. All the little slices of music that's underneath that is what's fueling those songs and becoming, you know, chart topping things. Now, did it start in radio and go there? Or did it just organically happen that somebody picked this song on TikTok? Or is it curated? You know, and uh, I think a lot of the record labels that are really big, that ha- that have some clout and things like that, have teams of people that are curating these little five or ten second samples of music, and it's going that way. Um, you know, I think the government screwed everything up when they took away payola and um, <laughs> the ability to kind of like um, bribe you guys to play our music. It was really unfair. <laughs> but, um, uh, but unfortunately... When we grew up, radio was so incredible. You'd sit there and listen and wait for your song to come on the radio. And now, you know, a lot of times we just listen to it sometimes in the car. Like I do because I'm just an older generation. But when my kids are with me, it's it's the aux cord. And hey, let, let's listen to this song. And hey, dad, check this out. I found this new band and stuff like that. From a sound engineering standpoint, from a recording standpoint, do you have to think differently about how you record a sound because you know it might be streamed and someone's going to be listening to it through earbuds versus listening to it in their car over the radio? It's a really good question. Uh, The recording is always going to be the same. You know, you try to do something really high quality and great soundscape. The mixing side of things is when you really dive into that. So in my studio, I probably have at any given time in front of my console, you know, four or five sets of speakers. And the reason for that is that I know how it's going to sound at a stadium with my big, big, big speakers at a club, you know, with medium sized speakers with my bookshelves. I kind of hear where it's going to sound like at someone's home if they had like an average stereo. And I have this little speaker. It's like five inches big. And I know how it's going to sound on earbuds. Um, I know how it's going to sound on a TV or on a small, you know, radio and how it's going to sound in mono as as far as stereo. And then I go as far as to even you know, listening in the car, which is, I think is important. And then um, I put it through my phone, both with earbuds and just the little speakers on the phone. Because you got to remember, you know, sound is broken up into like three, you know, parts, your high end, your mid range and your lows, which sounds great on my big hi-fi speakers where I have all these speakers in a row. But when you're on your like little phone, just streaming something through the little, spe- there's no highs, there's no mid, no lows, you just have the mid range. So I go through really hard lengths to make it sound great on that. And when it does, it also kind of bubbles out, you know, so I'm always checking all my systems to, to make sure that I have the right blend and everything. And it, you know, those little attention to detail is why I can justify what I charge, you know, where do you see the industry going? Where are we going to find new talent? What types of music do you think are, are going to be, you know, the hits coming down, you know, what look in your crystal ball for us. That's Yeah, my crystal ball says music will never go away. It'll always change. It'll always evolve. I mean, it started off with someone maybe taking a couple of bones and banging them together while they were in between, you know, running away from dinosaurs. And now it's about commerce, right? And so, you know, it's a lot of a singles market. I think good talent will always bubble up. The unfortunate part of talent and, and artistry is that artists sometimes are their own worst enemies, and they really take themselves out of the game by making bad decisions or just wanting to make art for art's sake and not commerce, which isn't a bad decision. It's actually great, but it won't go out into the masses. A lot of times we have to sell our, our soul 
a little bit to kind of go a little bit further and, you know, maybe do something that we don't really want to do artistically, but because you feel like it's going to be a lot more cash or a bigger thing or a bigger opportunity, a lot of artists go that way. I think as far as, you know, what will be the next wave, it just history repeats itself. You know, let's look back 10, 20 years and see what the trends were. You know, in the 50s and the early 60s, it was it was singles. You know, it was uh, teeny bop type music. And, and we've been living in that for about 10 years right now. You know, what came after that was like the summer of love and, you know, some rock bands. And now you're starting to see like kids pick up music instruments again, you know. And I think, you know, a lot of that had to do with some of the rock band stuff and all those games. And when one young person sees someone else playing, you go, I can do that. You know, I think my generation was a little different because we saw it every day on MTV. And like, oh my God, I could be a rock star. You know, oh, I could do that. I can, I can put a cigarette in my mouth, and which we're not supposed to smoke anymore. Don't smoke. Bad for you. <laughs> and then, you know, play guitar or whatever. Uh, you know, I think what happens now is, is people don't want to do those little steps of like learning how to play an instrument, maybe becoming a great songwriter and playing live. And they see these people online that are just kind of singing into a, a screen and becoming huge because of a million views. That's producer, mixer, and engineer Carl Napa. I'm Megan Lynch with media literacy expert Julie Smith. What the Media is produced by Odyssey St. Louis from the studios of KMOX Radio in St. Louis, Missouri. Our executive producer is Beth Coglin. We invite you to visit KMOX.com for more on our media literacy project. Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.